is back here with handouts. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. And uh, anything else, I think I'll just turn it right over to you. Good morning, Bayshore. Good morning. It's really good to be here. And uh, you are spread out. It's really, it's really kind of good. Now nobody will get spit on from the front of here, <laughs> for sure. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things. Uh, over here under the monitor are copies of the books that I have uh, written. There are five books. The first book is called Crisis. Um, Falling to Pieces was not an option for me. It is the story of um, the lessons that I learned on a cancer journey from 10, 11 years ago and how that disrupted our plan for adoption um, and then how God took that full circle and brought it back and we uh, eventually ended up adopting and adding children to our family. And so um, that's what that book is. And then the other four are a Bible study series. They are standalone. They don't go in order. You don't have to read one to, read to three. It's, it's not, it doesn't work like that. But they're called the Stand Bible Study Series. They're Stand Unashamed, which is centered on the women in uh, the book of Genesis. And then there's Stand Strong, which is a Bible study uh, on the book of Mark. And it's face-to-face uh, -face encounters with Jesus for the weary, the weak, and the worn out. And then there's Stand Ready, Fighting right for the things worth fighting for. That's centered in some Old Testament stories from the book of Judges, uh, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings. And then newly released, uh, you are the second group of people to be offered uh, Stand Unmasked. Has absolutely nothing to do with our last 18 months or so. Uh, God gave me this title prior to... Uh, the pandemic and so just so you know it's there's nothing political there's no opinion there's it's absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever um, but it is uh, the basis for our Bible study this week um, I'm taking some of the themes from that and teaching it here but there's some that are tweaked and you know and also um, the the titles of each of our day are not the same names that are some of them are the same that are in the book but I like alliteration and so I kept everything that starts with the letter I our main word for each day uh, this week um, how much do the books cost well that's up to you it's just a free will donation there's a I think there might be a silver bucket over here or whatever and uh, if you if you uh, want a book you just do whatever you feel you need to do uh, for that. Um, Bayshore Camp has blessed me and my family immensely and continues to be an oasis for us. And so it's, uh, it's an honor and a pri privilege to be able to be here and to be invited back to uh, teach this week. I'm very excited about that. So thank you to the Roots for the uh, invitation and extending that. When I was a little girl, my parents every once in a while on a Sunday would say, okay, we're going for a drive. And my sister and I loved it. We, I have two sisters, one's a year older and one's 10 years younger. It was before the one that was 10 years younger was even thought of. And so it was just my older sister and I. And we would pack up like we were leaving for a week. But we, we knew that we had just gotten home from church and we had eaten lunch already and we still had Sunday evening service to go to. So we weren't going far. We were just getting in the car and going. But my parents would say, let's go. And he, my dad would start driving, and then he'd get to a stop sign somewhere, and he would say, okay, which way do you want to go? 
And we'd get to say, let's go left. Okay, we'll go left. And so we would just do this, and we'd eventually land at an ice cream place. We just kind of wandered on a Sunday afternoon. We just called them the Sunday Drive. One time when I was a little girl, I got lost in Kmart. Anybody ever been lost in a store? <laughs> yep, yep. It was my mom's fault. It wasn't mine, because she wasn't paying attention to me, right? I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I wandered off, and there I was until I heard in the over thing, Ellen Schweitzer, paging Ellen Schweitzer, your mommy is waiting for you at, and I was like, oh, that's me. But I thought it was really cool to hear my name over the thing, so I didn't go, because I wanted to hear it again. So I just kept wandering around, and I was just like, girl, you know, nowhere to go, just rolling around, as if I had all the time in the world. Ellen Schweitzer, and the voice got a little more right, your mommy is waiting for you. So then I went up to the desk, and I had a conversation with my mother. Um, <laughs> wandering. Wandering, I find myself, when I go shopping, I'm not, I don't like malls. I just, I'm not a mall person. It, it makes me crazy. But I love going into TJ Maxx. It is, I was just talking about TJ Maxx over here. It is my favorite, or Marshalls, either one. Love, love, love. But in order to find a good deal, you gotta wander around. You gotta kind of roam through things. Just meander and, and figure some things out. And so, yeah. Because you just might find a dress for $11 and wear it on the first day that you, you know, teach Bible study. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you're not going to find the deals. You're not going to find the treasures, those nuggets, unless you wander about in the store. This week, we're going to focus on wandering. But spiritually speaking, not shopping, not getting lost in the store, not taking a Sunday drive. But spiritually speaking, we're on a walk of faith. It's a faith journey, our faith walk. So how are you doing on your faith walk? How are you doing on your faith journey? How are you doing on walking with Jesus? And that's the question that you get to answer. And then we're going to look and take a, uh, a deep dive into the book of Exodus, where we're going to follow the Israelites as they wandered. They're going to teach us some really valuable lessons this week. Their wandering journey is for us to know the history, but it's also for us to learn from. So I'm going to read uh, real quick here, here from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. And there's um, 12 of them, and you can read them yourselves. So, so now let's go to verse 5. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. But Joseph was already in Egypt. So we need to stop there. If we read through that and we just bypass that Joseph was already there without asking the question, well, why was Joseph there? And why did everybody else? And how come they were separated? Then we will not have a full understanding of what's going on. You see, sometimes in life, we have to take a look backwards in order to see where we are in our current reality. Sometimes we're wandering in our faith journey today and we're not wandering well because something that went wrong or awry and got misplaced that way. We don't necessarily have to walk back there, but I kind of like to use the vehicle analogy. We've got a windshield and we have a rearview mirror. And the rearview mirror is very helpful as we drive. But you don't drive looking through the rearview mirror, but you glance at it, right? The other day I was driving down the road and I hit a bird. 
And I didn't, I mean, I, I wasn't aiming towards the bird. It wasn't my motivation to hit the bird, but I hit the bird and I looked in my rearview mirror. Actually, my first thought was, this is a new car. Did it hurt my new car? But I look in the rearview mirror and I see the bird laying on the road behind me. Just a glance was enough to tell me what happened, but I was still going forward and looking through the windshield. In life, we walk, we walk our faith journey through the windshield but there's times we have to focus here and we have to take a look backwards also. So looking back really quick, the reason that Joseph was in Egypt and everybody else, his family, his brothers and his father weren't is because there was some strife in their family. There was jealousy, there was hatred, there was discord, there was dysfunction. But now let's back up even further and go back to his um, uh, ancestor, Abraham. You see, God came to Abraham, you find the story in Genesis chapter 12, and he established covenant with a man named Abram, and then he later had his name changed to Abraham. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac, and that covenant of promise passed on to Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and that promise and that covenant then was passed on to one of his sons. His name was Jacob, and as we saw here, that there was the Jacob family, and then he had 12 sons. And each of his 12 sons are now the tribes of Israel because Jacob had his name changed to Israel. That's a lot of information in a very short little period of time. You can read it yourself, it's in the book. It's all, it's all in, in Genesis. You can follow it through and get there. But Joseph was son number 11 out of 12. And his older 10 brothers, um, they didn't like him because he was favored by his father. Now this is not a parenting class, but that's just never a good idea to pick favorites at all. Um, but Joseph was already there because his brothers had a plan to get rid of him. Their first plan was let's kill him. And then one of the brothers said, no, that's a little too dramatic. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. So they did, they sold him into slavery. So the band of the people came forward, they got him and along the road, they picked him up and then they took him to Egypt and then Joseph um, grew in stature and in station within Egypt, and God's plan was over his life. God's grace was over his life. It really was never God's plan for Joseph to be hated by his brothers and for Joseph to be uh, sold into slavery, but God will take those things in our life and he will use them for good and for his purposes to still happen. So famine happens in the land. They land in Egypt. Joseph is there. The family gets reunited. Sorry, it's on the phone. Um, the family gets reunited, but they were all supposed to, when the famine was over, go back to the land of Canaan where their home was, the land that God had given Abraham way back generations before, only they stayed. They stayed in Egypt. So here we are 400 plus some years later in Exodus chapter one, and now it's time, God says, for them to be released. And so he sends a deliverer to rescue his people and return them back to where they belong. Though God sent them there, they were never meant to settle in Egypt. You see, when we settle, we spiritually wander. 
And then we end up settling for less than what God's design is for us. We settle for cultural standards rather than God's statutes. We settle for temporary comforts over eternal peace. We settle for happiness instead of joy. We settle for our wants and our wishes rather than God's will. Settling is a form of wandering. When we settle where God didn't lead, where God didn't approve of, or where God didn't design, or where God didn't plan for us, there will be consequences. Followers of Jesus will wander. The question is, will we wander well? Resolving this now sets us right to wander well. The problem is that too many of us wait until we're in the wilderness to figure out how we're going to get out, to figure out how we're going to get out. It's, it's more common that we pray for God to take us out of a wilderness than it is for us to pray for him to carry us through the wilderness. We all wander in the wilderness, some of us more than others. Another question is, are you prepared for that journey? Are you prepared for a wilderness journey? Because you might be in one today. How did you prepare for it? It's not too late to get prepared if you're in one. But we're all guaranteed that there's a wilderness coming around the bend because none of us live on easy street. So there will be hardships in our life. The wilderness journeys happen, the wandering times that make my faith in Jesus, they're supposed to make our roots go deeper in him. We've had uh, challenges in our life. Personally, I've had wilderness journeys, even most recent, and we'll talk about some of those this week. Challenged to change more into his likeness, though, while wandering and influenced to live as he intends. Okay, did that advance the slide? I don't know if you all can see it or not back there. And if you are, if you have trouble seeing it, you need to tell me or my husband, Kevin, later, Richard, this guy raising his hand up here in the front row, um, and I will adjust the uh, font size for tomorrow. But I just need somebody to tell me if that's true. So today we're going to talk about idolatry. Idolatry is an obstruction that comes on our faith journey as we are wandering. So each day we're going to look at one word that uh, that is a, a, an obstruction, that's idolatry for today. And then we're going to look at a word from the dictionary that describes what it means to wander. So today is to stray. To stray is another word for wander. You all have a handout. And if you don't, you need to raise your hand. And Kev, there's a couple people in the back. Um, raise your hands high and he will make sure you get one. All your note-taking from Monday through Friday is in this handout. Um, all the key points that are going to come up on the PowerPoint slides are already written out for you. The scriptures are already written out for you, so you don't have to take time to do that, and you can see where, where they go. Um, it's my desire anytime I teach or speak or preach, but also anytime that I study and that I am listening to the Lord and that I am sitting under somebody else's teaching is that uh, we are encouraged to grow, that we're challenged to change, and that we're influenced to live as Jesus intends. And that's my prayer through this week. So let's get back to Exodus here. Moses became the deliverer for the Hebrew children. Hebrew children, same as Israelites, so they're interchangeable. He led them out of their bondage, and he led them towards the promised land. But before they could return home, Remember, that's where they came from way back when Joseph lived, where his brothers sold him. That was the land of Canaan. And then when all the brothers left, that's the promised land. So they're just going back home. 
But God had some more prep work for his people, and he had some communication to communicate to his covenant people. And so God called Moses up to Mount Sinai where he communicated the Ten Commandments or his laws for his people to live by. To be clear, they are not suggestions, they are commandments. E. Stanley Jones, he lived from 1907 to the, from 1907 into the 1970s. He was a missionary and an evangelist, and he refers to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Demandments. The Ten Demandments. You see, God commands, but because they're God's commands, they're also his demands, and that means that they are not optional. And so his commands do not limit us, though. They free us. His demands do not hinder us. They set us free to live as Jesus intends. Though he requires we obey, he will not force it. And so after the people heard the commands in Exodus chapter 20 and the stipulations on how to live as God's people, this is how they responded. If you want to turn to Exodus 24, verse 3, you will read with me. Exodus 24, the end of verse 3, the people replied, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Go down to verse 7. Here's their next reply. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. How many in here have ever made that pledge to God? Everything you do that you say, Lord, I'm going to do, I am going to obey. Those are sweeping statements. They're powerful promises. They're deep declarations. But what happens when something gets in the way and we don't do as we thought or as we vowed that we would do? You see, obstructions along our faith journey are going to happen. It is inevitable. The question is, will you still wander well? Too many followers of Jesus take steps of faith like it's a cakewalk. Or as I said earlier, that we live on easy street. Paul says this, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have trouble and tribulation. Peter says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. Obstructions are imminent, and too many people spend too much time praying away persecution and problems when we should first be tugging in tight to Jesus, prepared to navigate the obstruction. Because, key point number one, obstructions on our faith journey cause unforeseen and unwelcome outcomes. Obstructions have outcomes but we must be careful and intentional not to mix them up. Now, what does that mean? Well, sometimes we call an obstruction what might really be an outcome from what the real obstruction is. And if we're trying hard at trying to fix the outcome, we're never dealing with the obstruction that caused the outcome. So we need to make sure that we're spiritually ready to wander well by not getting these two things Confused. So let's look at the Israelites. Moses went up the mountain so that the Lord could give him the laws and the commands for the people to live by. But before Moses left, he told the elders that his brother Aaron and another guy named Hur were in charge. And if anyone had a dispute, they could go to them. Moses was gone 40 days and 40 nights. Let's look at Exodus chapter 32 and see how this landed. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, 
Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Oh man, look at the obstructions and the outcomes here. So you've got an obstruction of impatience. Moses hasn't come down from the mountain. The outcome, complaining. You have an obstruction of doubt. Uh, we don't know where he is. Probably not ever coming down. The outcome, they ignore the commitment that they made. Remember, they said, we will obey. An obstruction. They're disregarding authority. Something got turned around. Because if you notice in here, the people, tell, the people are telling Aaron what to do. The outcome, they're neglecting God, who is their ultimate authority. Obstruction, they're thinking and they're feeling. When we start thinking and we start going on our feelings, then we're in a mess already. Imagine the jabber going around camp at that time. Not this camp. No, not jabbering at this camp. But at this camp, imagine the jabber going on. Where is that Moses? Moses said he'd come back. He's not back. He put this guy in charge. We don't know what's going on. He walked us out of one place, landed here. I mean, what in the world are we doing here? Why are we listening to him? And who even said that we should listen to him? And then when we said we would obey without him, we didn't mean it. I mean, what was the jabbering going on in the camp there? When the obstruction of thinking and feeling happened, the outcome is we create our own path forward. But there was an obstruction that also happened, and it's called kowtowing. The obstruction of kowtowing and the outcome is idolatry. Idolatry can be both an outcome and an obstruction to our walk of faith. But before we dig deeper into this, we have to look at the obstruction that had this massive, unforeseen outcome for Aaron and all of Israel, because it's a huge deal in today's culture too, in our Christian culture. The definition of kowtow is to act in a sequious manner. Is, was that helpful? Kowtow, K-O-W-T-O-W, to act in an obsequious manner. The word obsequious is an excessive eagerness to please. Pleasing people is a good idea. Pleasing people is God's idea, but there is a difference in wanting to please people and being a people pleaser. When we seek to please people, it's what we can do for them. It's seeing a need and it's meeting a need. But being a people pleaser bends to their particular whims or to their wants. Maybe they demand it or we're afraid or intimidated by them. And then we kowtow. Now I'm sure this is not true in any of your churches, but I've heard of other places. And George, I mean you and Sherry, this has never happened in any of your churches either, I'm sure. Because it happens in other places. <laughs> Where, oh, that's just the way she is. Or, he's always been like that. Everybody tiptoes around that one. They get what they want. They get to act however they want. Everybody complains about them. But after all, it's just the way they are. I'd like to know why they get a pass for being just the way they are. In some families, the same people 
come to Thanksgiving feast. Or maybe they live in your home every day. For years, we keep walking on the same eggshells of that one that we all wish would come down with some bug so that they wouldn't be able to come to a family get-together. Not a terrible one, just one that keeps them all today. Why are we so apt to bend to their whims and their whines? Maybe it's because the obstruction is in our way of seeing clearly and acting prudently. You see, we think that the people are the obstruction to our personal or to our family or to our church's faith journeys, but they're not the problem. They're the outcome to the kowtowing. You see, kowtowing is people-pleasing, and it's a huge obstruction on our faith journeys, in our faith communities, and in our families. Now, just to make sure that we're checking all these boxes here, I know that none of your families has ever had a problem child. No one in here is ever the one that everybody else wishes would just come down with that little bug to avoid a family function. No one in here is the reason that everybody walks on eggshells that you leave in your way. Mm. I've had the privilege of serving as a member on a few different boards of directors. I've been on staff at various churches and different ministry organizations. And it is a detriment to a ministry and it is harmful to an organization when we kowtow to leadership. In one experience, I often heard other staff people say, oh, we just want to make them happy <laughs> regarding the, the leader. We just want to make them happy. I was flabbergasted. Since when is it our goal in ministry to make our leaders happy? I quickly realized it ended up to be more like a monarchy than a ministry. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, We are not trying to please men, but God. This must be the filter that we use. It's an accountability point to ponder. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to serve, not be served. When we desire to please people, we are like Jesus. We have a servant heart. But when we kowtow or we become people pleasers, we're bowing to that person and not to God. And folks, we cannot bend a knee in two directions. Aaron kowtowed to the people. He gave them what they wanted. And it was in direct opposition to the promise that they all made. We will do everything you tell us to do, Lord. We will obey. And what was the outcome? Idolatry. Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator, he lived back in 1662 and he died in 1714. He says this, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared, or served, delighted in, or depended on more than God, that whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. Pursuing anything or anyone with more passion and desire than we follow Jesus is idolatry. In 1952, Bill Bright, he's the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, it's now known as CRU, C-R-U, created a pamphlet called The Four Spiritual Laws. I need two volunteers. Oh, I don't know if I have those things. Okay, I need two volunteers. Quickly or I'll call on you. Okay, Kevin, yep. Mr. Battery. Come on up. All right, oh, no, you're gonna stand right here. Okay, Kevin, you're gonna stand like this. 
<laughs> How many of you are familiar with the pamphlet called The Four Spiritual Laws? The Four Spiritual Laws. It was a little tract, T-R-A-C-T, which just meant we can keep these in our pockets, we can keep them in our purses, and we can hand them out to people wherever we go, and it's a form of evangelism. It's a form of sharing the gospel. And so these tracts were used for those purposes. Crew claims on their website that 2.5 billion tracts have been distributed. 2.5 billion of these things. Mr. Bright wrote what is called the force laws that he claimed govern our relationship with God. Okay, so we need a chair. Here's a chair. <laughs> okay, here's a chair. All right. All right, the S gets to sit in the chair. All right, there we go. Now, in the track, there are two simple circles. In the middle of each, you have to keep your ass up. In the middle of each circle, there is a chair <laughs> or a throne. <laughs> so in, in this one over here, S is on the throne, but where's the cross? The cross is on the outside, right? And so now you got trade spots. Now the now the now the the cross goes on the on the throne. Okay, so the cross represents Christ, and the S represents self. So it's obvious which way we're supposed to live. We want the cross on the throne of our lives, with S off to the side, meaning. Christ is up. We will do everything the Lord commanded us to do. We will obey. That's what this looks like. Not Trey. Not Trey. Yep. Now see, Christ is still a... You got to sit on the phone. Christ... And put your ass up. Christ is still in the picture. But self is now on the throne. And when self is on the throne, who are we worshiping? Really, I mean, he's present, and we say we're worshiping Christ, but but are we? That's the question. To wander well, the S needs to be off the throne, and the cross needs to be back where it belongs, so that we can live the way that Jesus says. Okay, thank you, guys. <laughs> yes, there are tracks that show that. <laughs> you don't need to take people with you. So the Israelites assigned a different ruler to their throne. They assigned themselves. And when Moses hadn't returned, they had an unmet expectation. And their solution was that they were going to call the shots. They were going to determine their source of worship. What was that? Take the gold jewelry, melt it down, and cast it into the shape of a calf. Well, that makes sense, right? Isn't that what your first thought would be? So I have a question. How'd they get the jewelry? Well, God's word supplies the answer. God provided the jewelry. How? Well, before the Israelites left Egypt, you'll, you will find this if you want to just mark it down. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 21. And God made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Israelites. So when the Israelites said, hey, give me your gold jewelry, the Egyptians said, okay, name all their jewelry. Why? So they wouldn't leave empty-handed. It was a tangible provision that they had. They could see it, they could touch it, they could feel it. And I started to wonder, 
I wonder if they could hear it clanking as they were walking out of bondage as a constant reminder that the cadence of the clank of the gold would remind them, God did this, God did this, God did this. Every clink with each step would bolster them to press on. And then they traded God's provision for a golden vision. Aaron's kowtow produced a cow. And that brought further unforeseen outcomes. Key point number two, lives are altered at the altar. Look at verse five, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 32. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. I have the privilege of being raised at a United Methodist Church. It's called Clarenceville United Methodist Church in Livonia, Michigan. I was raised where altar calls were common. It was common that after uh, a message was preached, that the preacher would give an invitation for the people to come forward to respond to whatever it was that had been preached that evening. I watched as people knelt at the wooden rails and they cried out to God for intervention in their brokenness. I witnessed immense and impactful change in people's lives. They surrendered their hearts, they surrendered their marriages, they surrendered their troubles, they surrendered their wills over to the Lord. They invited Christ into their crises and into their chaos. Many idols were cast down at that altar. The things that people loved more than God, the things that stood in the way of truly worshiping Jesus, they surrendered to God. Now the preacher voiced the invitation to come to the altar, but it didn't begin there because it's God's call. After all, the altar is his, and it is God's will that we lay our idols down at his altar, but it is required that we do it God's way. You know, Aaron built an altar in front of the calf, and he said, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Aaron is still kowtowing. You see, if Aaron wanted to please God, he would model proper surrender and proper sacrifice. But because he's kowtowing, there is no surrender and there is no sacrifice, because surrender gives up and sacrifices offered. Aaron might have built an altar here, but the idol still stands. We're not told what motivated Aaron to build this altar. Perhaps he felt some remorse. Maybe he regretted his impulsivity, but surrender is all in. But Aaron, he's leaving the people halfway. And half-hearted following God is an obstruction on our faith journey, and it has unforeseen outcomes when the idol stands in the way. It doesn't take long to scroll through social media feeds to see Christians settling with an obstructed view of Christ in their life. Any perusal will find followers of Jesus posting complaints and cuss words, gossiping and grumbling, overly opinionated and oppressive comments. When facing hardships, there's an abundance of whining and there's even remedies involving wine. With the idol standing tall, Aaron initiated a festival to the Lord, which appears to be a step in the right direction, but look further. Verse 6. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. The next day, the people rose early. And they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented their fellowship offerings. To have our lives 
has altered, we must amend our view of the altar. You see, those who stood at the foot of the cross, they had a clear view of God's surrendered son. The ultimate sacrifice was on display for the redemption of mankind. God's son did not walk halfway up the hill to Mount Calvary. They did not wait until he was half dead to take him down. God did not love half the world, and he did not have a redemption plan for half of humanity. No, Jesus was all in on his cross at Calvary, and our surrender and our sacrifice needs to look exactly the same. All in. Idol, oh God bless you. Idols initiate indulgence. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. The King James Version says, they rose up to play. Now, if we were reading that, we would think they were having a good time. It's about time they relaxed. It's about time they enjoyed themselves. But we have to know what that word means. You see, it sounds like they were having fun. It sounds like they were having a good time. But just because we think it doesn't make it true. You see, those gathered at the altar, they combined their, access, their acceptable offerings with opponent actions. They got up to indulge in revelry. That should disturb us. Indulgence disrupts sacrifice, and it spoils worship. Revelry is a boisterous festivity. They indulge in revelry. Instead of surrendering to God's will, they yielded to their own. Their worship was won over by their carnal desires. With the golden idol obstructing the view of God's altar, rather than seeking God to feed their weary souls, they indulged in what had their attention. It was fool's play. Key point number four, obstruction can cause corruption. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, you better get down there, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. Corrupt. Look at verse 8. God's still speaking. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And they bowed down to it, and they're sacrificing to it. And they've said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. God says, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Other versions will say stubborn. One says they're impossible to deal with. One said they're obstinate, they're rebellious, they're hard-headed. This wasn't a slow fade, folks. Just days earlier, we will do everything the Lord commanded us to do. We will obey. We will obey. But consider what obstructions got in their way. Were they worried when Moses wouldn't return or if he would? Were they tired of waiting? Had they lost their hope? Did they doubt God's presence in their current reality? You see, when obstructions carry us away, then we're going to turn away from God's truth. And then corruption, which is ruins and rottens, it's not far away. Idolatry stands in the way, it carries us away, and then we end up turning away from God. Aaron built an altar, and he was prepared to offer sacrifices, but this idol stood in between. To wander well in the wilderness, idols cannot stand in the way of our walk of faith. And they certainly cannot stand in the way 
of God's altar. So ask yourself, what has your attention? Because whatever has your attention has you. We're prone to wander. Can you feel it? Therefore, we must be fully aware of what has our attention. Do people have your attention? Does your career have your attention? Does your bank account have your attention? Does your retirement portfolio have your attention? Is there a habit that has your attention? Is there an addiction that has your attention? Are there ideologies that have your attention? Is there a pandemic that has your attention? You see, anything can be fashioned into an idol and placed between you and the Lord. What has your attention? Because whatever has most of your attention has you. When we turn our attention elsewhere, our hearts and our minds idolize ideas and we revere people. We become influenced by culture and its ideologies. We trade godly truth for man-made insight. We seek worldly resources for temporary guidance. We go to people before we pray. We seek advice from friends before we open God's word. We rely on podcasts and avoid our accountability people. Culture, man's insight, resources, friends, podcasts, they're not wrong, they're not bad. But when they primarily influence us and they become our go-to, then they have our attention. And that will cause spiritual missteps. Idolatry corrupts and it makes us stiff-necked. That's obstinate, it's unyielding, inflexible, not easily overcome. Hmm. God's wrath is our wake-up call. Christians are not always comfortable talking about God's anger. Oh, we love talking about his mercy and singing about his grace. If there was no sin, his mercy and his grace would be useless and there would be no hymns written about them. Sin is present in our lives, and the Bible is very clear, makes God angry. Their sin and their rebellion was unacceptable in God's eyes. The King James Version says, of verse 10, God says, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. Yeah, I'd say he's pretty hot, right? The King James Version says, his wrath waxed hot against them. Hmm. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. We find the things that God hates. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that God hates and seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked schemes. In the Hebrew, wicked can also mean idolatry. Devising the plan to build the golden calf and worship it was a wicked scheme. And the wise writer of Proverbs says, God hates that. It's a strong word, hate. But God uses it. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. They devised and implemented an evil scheme in a very short period of time. 
They were impetuous and they swiftly walked into wickedness. One of the other things that God hates, feet that rush in to evil. But instead of just being angry at them, his anger was used to get their attention. You see, God's wrath is not a common prayer request. When you find yourselves in some massive trouble and you are not wandering well, do you pray, Lord, please wax hot against me? <laughs> it's not a common prayer. <laughs> and yet, it should be our wake-up call. A good God gets angry. No one is immune to spiritual slumber. When we're spiritually asleep, God's the only one who can wake you up. And because he is good, he knows what's best. Psalm 106, 14 mentions the Israelites' rebellion that led to their corruption. It says, in the desert they gave in to their craving. In the wasteland they put God to the test. That Psalm 106 goes on in verses 19 and 21 and says, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image. They forgot the God who saved them who had done great things in Egypt. Though he burned with anger, his love endured, and his goodness was intact. Psalm 106, verse 23 says, So God said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. You ever had a good friend come up to you and correct you? You ever have a solid spiritual person that you know they, they are walking the walk because they're talking the talk and it's all matching up and they come and have a conversation with you? What's your reaction and your response to them? You see, they're God's gift to you in that moment. This is what his wrath, hot waxing in our lives looks like. He sends people our way to help us but some of us get things all up in a bundle and just, you have no business telling me you can't judge me. That's not your right. Oh, whatever. If God sent them to us, then yes, it is their right because it's not even about their right. It's about them walking in obedience to catch you from falling down the path even further and getting into the wilderness, into the weeds that are thick and God's way of catching you and you're pushing it aside. Oh, church, that we would receive his correction when it comes because it's for our good. Idolatry has us in deep slumber and God knows that these Israelites could not hear his voice and they could not heed his call. So he went to Moses. He was the intermediary. It was not Moses' responsibility to wake them up. It was his duty to lead them well. Idolatry blinds us. We can't see our own spiritual decline. But perhaps God allows others to see it for us. And they can stand in the breach on our behalf like Moses did for these people. Had Moses not stood in the gap, no one would have. Because they were all standing before the idol. Exodus 32:14. Then the Lord relented. We should just, he relented and he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Go to verse 19, Exodus 32, 19. 
When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the ground, and made the Israelites drink it. Go back to 19. He approached the camp. He confronted Aaron and the people. He saw the calf. He noticed the revelry. His anger burned. You see this, 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 the things that happened, the steps? And he threw the stone tablets on the ground. You see, confrontation is necessary. Nobody likes to confront. Nobody likes to be confronted. But do you know that it's necessary? Confrontation is necessary. Culturally, we are told, indirectly and directly, that it is not a loving thing to confront people. Many people believe the lie. And they believe if they want to act a certain way, then we must respect that because after all, it is their truth. We're inundated with messages of love, that love trumps all, that we must love without confronting. But standing back and watching our family and our friends and our fellow church folks indulging in revelry that has them quickly fading away and turning away from God needs intervention. And we've all been there before. We need intervention. At times, we all need a Moses. And there are times that we're called to be a Moses. But notice what Moses is armed with as he approached the camp. Go back to verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides. <laughs> Anybody in this room got a testimony? Okay, let me ask it another way. Anybody in this room have Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Okay, keep your hands up. Oh, you keep your hands up. You have a testimony. That's your testimony. Moses went down the mountain with his testimony in his hands. We have a testimony in our hearts. It goes wherever we go. Are you sharing it? You need to be sharing your testimony because there are people wandering and they're not doing it well. And they need you to stand in the breach for them. How many of you have ever had somebody else share their testimony with you? And I don't mean just about how they came to Christ, but what God is doing in their life today. That church that I shared about, the Clarenceville United Methodist Church, one of my favorite things about that church when I was growing up was the popcorn testimonies every single Sunday night. People, testimony time, people would stand up and share what God did in their life. But you know what I loved about it? They didn't share about when they came into a relationship with Jesus 25 years ago. They shared about how God showed up in their life that week. Lord. And people stood up every Sunday night. Sometimes the preacher just decided to not preach because so many people wanted to share how God was working in their life that week. When you have an opportunity to share what God's done in your life, take it. But I'll rephrase. Take an opportunity to share what God has done in your life because somebody needs it. You're in the breach and you don't know. You have no idea what your words are going to do for somebody else. But God has called every single one of us. We all have the great commission. Make disciples. Your commission is not to be a disciple. Your call is to be a disciple. 
Our commission is to make disciples. And the only way that's going to happen is if the church starts standing up and telling the testimony, praising Jesus for what he's done and sharing how he's worked in our life. He was armed, it says here in verse 16. The tablets were the work of God, the writing of God. We've got the work of God. Some of you are holding it in your hand. Some of you scroll through it on your phones. The word of God. His word is the weapon that we take into any battle. His word is the weapon we need in a conflict and war and struggle and dispute and fight and in confrontation. Be armed with the word of God. Your opinion doesn't matter a lick. But God's word is exactly what people need to hear and it is exactly what we need to know. And you can't share God's word if you don't know God's word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us what the word is. The word is living, it is active, it is sharp, it is penetrating. It divides in the soul and joints and marrow. And that's not your body. It's your soul. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4.13 goes on and says, Everything is uncovered and laid bare to him who we must give an account to. What in your life needs the word of God thrown at it? Because it's blocking your view of the altar. You see, idols cannot be destroyed until they are identified. It's not enough to say, Lord, remove the idols in my life. Because he can do it. But it doesn't help you any if you don't identify what those idols are. Then ask the Lord to remove them. Otherwise, all we're doing is stepping around them, but they're still in the way of the altar. They must be destroyed. You saw what Moses did in verse 20. He took the calf that they had made, he burned it in the fire, he ground it to powder and scattered it on the ground. And then he made the Israelites drink it. Until the idol was destroyed, its influence had captured their attention had their hearts, had their minds, they were captivated, they were captivated by a false God that they had created. <laughs> Have you ever heard the words, actions speak louder than words? So think about it. Moses could have come in and said, what are you thinking? Words. He acted. He picked that thing up, he threw it in the fire, and they all stood there and watched it burn down to the ground, and then he took that powder. That took time, you know. This was not just a quick torch of two minutes. This took time. Then he scattered it all over the ground. You see, until the idol was destroyed, it captured their attention. Actions spoke louder than words. Moses saw he was hot with fury, and without saying a word, he did something about it. How many of you have ever done something about it? We're so busy giving people a piece of our mind, that we're not giving them what they really need. The word of truth. And truth is the word. But when he did that, huh, the singing silenced, the dancing stopped, the people stared, and Moses hurled their idol into the fire, smashed it into gold pieces, and scattered it on the ground. His every action spoke volumes. The idols must be disproved and they must be destroyed. The people had quickly turned from walking by faith to trusting in what their hands had made. 40 days earlier, they were all about following God, right? We will do everything. 
But you know, following God's will has to be done God's way. Many of us say we're doing God's will, but the next question is, are you doing it his way? Because when we do his will our way, we will be quickly led astray. Since God is jealous, we should be zealous. Exodus 34, 14, it says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Anybody ever struggle with that concept before? So that I don't have to teach it, that's awesome. <laughs> God's a jealous God. You see, they're in covenant relationship with him. We're in covenant relationship with him. Covenant requires two contributors, God and you and me. Allowing another partaker to take part in our relationship with God brings out his jealousy. Our hearts were not made to be divided in two directions. God desires you and all of you. God is passionate for you and all of you. God loves you, all of you. We were not made to make idols. We were created in his image and destined to worship him alone. God and the golden calf cannot cohabit in the Israeli camp. It's easy to look at the Israelites and declare that their actions are foolish. How could they be so stupid to bow down to a golden calf? There's not a lot of time between crossing the Red Sea and bowing to the golden calf. The Israelites forgot their zeal. Oh, it was intact when God stacked water at the Red Sea and they walked on dry ground. Most were zealous when God provided manna in the desert. Some still had zeal when water was poured from the rock. And it's when the Red Sea experiences in our life dry up that our zeal gets tested. Though they did not lose their faith, but they could have been well on their way, many of the Israelites abandoned their zealous pursuit of God during those 40 days when Moses was up on the mountain. And it was after this decline of zeal that they donned their mask of idolatry. And that's why God needed to come and unmask it for them. Exodus 32.20, where it says that he ground it to powder, scattered it on the ground, and made the Israelites drink it. <laughs> Some of you might think that's disgusting. Well, I Googled it. You can actually drink ground up gold powder. There's edible gold, it's such a thing. Personally, I think it's disgusting, the thought of it. But it's a real thing, it's flavorless, it's non-toxic, and because gold powder or flakes pass through the digestive tract without being absorbed, it has zero nutritional value either. Moments earlier, the golden calf was revered, worshiped, and praised, but after a zealous act from Moses, it was destroyed by the fire and consumed as useless human waste. You have an index card. That index card is for you to allow the Lord to speak to you. What idols are in your life that it's time to cast them down? Don't put your name on the card. But what idols do you need to cast down at God's altar? You see, it's time that we allow the Spirit of God to burn up the idols in our life, standing in the way of us kneeling at his altar. We don't have a campfire here. If we did, we'd use it, but we don't. So we're just going to pretend that there is one. But you know what? We have a source of living water. His name is Jesus. He's our supply. He is the stream that flows in the desert and in the wilderness journey of your life. 
Wilderness journeys leave us thirsty. Our souls are parched. And for our thirsty souls to be properly quenched, we need to drink from those springs of living water. Wilderness journeys leave us thirsty. Our souls are parched. And to wander well, the idols must be destroyed. And we must zealously pursue and be consumed by living water that only comes through Jesus. Drinking at the springs of living water. Happy now am I, my soul that satisfied. Drinking at the springs of living water. Oh, wonderful and bountiful supply. It's an old hymn. Drinking at the springs of living water. If you are ready to come to God's altar, nothing between. Nothing between you and him. You want to trade your idols for a drink of living water. We got some water over here. Kevin, would you come and pray over this water as if it was just ordinary water, but ask the Lord to use it. You want this microphone? And when he's done praying, just come forward if this is something that God is leading you to do. You're gonna, you're gonna just drop your idols at the picnic table. Just drop them. Just throw them. Don't take them back to your chairs. Like that doesn't make any sense, does it? And then trade them for a drink of living water. Let's pray. Father, we are a grateful people that you meet us in all times and in all places, and you are meeting us here and now. And this moment was not created to entertain us, but to challenge us. For we came to Bayshore Camp not to have our ears tickled by great preaching or teaching, but to have your Holy Spirit tug at our hearts. And you're doing that now. You're revealing to each of us right now, help us to give in to your will and cast down our idols and be willing to write it down as a symbolic form of surrendering it to the cross so that no S is before the cross, but the cross is always before us. And so God worked in a powerful way that each person leaving here today would have the opportunity by you to cast down their idol and drink of the living water. And so Father, bless that water that it might it might revive us and renew us for today and for tomorrow. But we walk day by day with you. And so today we cast down our idols. We drink of the living water of your son, Jesus, and his Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. So you're in chairs. It's not the easiest thing to just rise. There's no aisles. It's not easy to Pac-Man your way up here. But if the Lord has worked in your heart, come today. Don't leave here today without casting down your idol. Don't leave today without a cup of that living water. And if by chance somebody here can't get out of their chair or come forward, uh, if you can stay till the end, we'll, we'll bring the living water to you. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You can move now. <laughs>